Agudavach and welcome to the Shir in Project Luchatasichis. The Shir is in Chelak Tesvav, Sicha of Parshas Vayeshev, Sicha Aleph. This Sicha revolves around the connection between the end of Parshas Vayishlach and the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev and the coming Parshios Vayeshev and the Miketz Vayigash, which is the connection between the story. Vayishlach concludes with the story of Esau's family. First of all, Esau's children, all the different alufim, the families of Esau. And then the Torah goes on to describe all the kings of Esau, all the way till Hadad ben Bedad, which was a king all the way during the times of Shaul HaMelech. And the shift from the end of Ayishlach to Vayeshev, which begins the story of Yaakov's life. So the Medrash gives a marshal to describe this shift. And the Medrash says, Marshal Lamelech, a, a analogy to a king who lost a diamond in the, in, uh, in the sand. So the king is looking, he's looking for his diamond, and when the king finally finds his diamond, he lets go of the earth and the sand that's where, the di- where he was searching, and he takes the diamond and he gets busy only with the diamond. That is what the Medrash says to describe it. The Nimshal is very simple, that the only way to get to Yaakov's lifetime is first to discuss Esau, and then finally when we get to Yaakov, oh, now we start spending time with Yaakov, that was the goal, that was the kavana of what we were trying to do. Now, the question is, now the Medrash also gives the same marshal for the ten generations from Adam until Noach, and then from Noach until Avraham, where in those generations also the Torah spends a few psukim quickly describing those generations, and when we get to Noach, oh, now we spend time discussing Noach. The same thing is true from Noach until Avraham, we spend a few psukim, and then when it comes to Avraham, oh, now we start talking about Avraham. So the Rebbe asks a very simple question. L'chayra, the example of Noach and Avram is not the same thing as Esau and Yaakov. And the reason is because Noach and Avram, in their cases, uh, Noach wasn't, wasn't born yet. Noach was generation number 10. So Noach was concealed, just like the, the diamond is lost, it's hidden by the sand and the stones. Noach wasn't born yet, so obviously you have to get to whatever's in the way in order to get to Noach. And the same thing is true with Avram, from Noach to Avram. When it comes to Esau and Yaakov, Esau and Yaakov were just born together. And Parshas told us, the Torah says that Esau was born first, and right away Yaakov was born. So why do you have to get busy with Esau's life in order to get to Yaakov? How does Esau's life serve as the search until we get to Yaakov? Yaakov is already born, Yaakov is already around. So why can't we speak straight up from Yitzchak's life, straight into Yaakov? Why do we have to get busy with Esau's life? That's the, that's the question. Now, obviously, there are certain details about Yaakov's life that are related to Esau's life. Obviously, the story of the brachos. We have to speak about Esau in order to understand the fact that Yaakov got the brachos. So there are certain stories in the Torah that we do need to know what happened with, uh, with Esau in order to appreciate the contrast to Yaakov. But it's definitely not important to, to, to give us all the details of all the kings and all the families and everything that went all, all the way to Shalom Melech's times. Obviously, those details are not related in any way to understanding Yaakov's life. And therefore, there's no, seemingly, there's no reason for the Torah to speak about it in great length, certainly not as a, a hakdama to Yaakov's lifetime. Rebbe asks also numerous details in the marshal. The marshal, when the Medrash gives this marshal, the Medrash gives the marshal of uh, Afar and Tzreiros, that when the king was searching for his diamond, he was searching for it between the Afar and the Tzreiros. Afar meaning the earth, and the Tzreiros meaning the stones. What's one of these two details in the marshal, both Afar and Tzreiros? Another question is, when the Medrash describes the king finally finding what he was looking for, so the Medrash says that the king takes the stone, he, so the Medrash says that the king, maniach, he gets rid of, he drops, he lets go of the, of the stones and the sand, 
And Nisasei, he occupies himself with the, with the diamond, with the margolis. It's an obvious thing. When you find what you're looking for, you get rid of everything, you drop everything else, and you occupy yourself with what you were looking for. So that detail in the marshal seems to be an obvious thing, not something that the, that the Medrash seemingly needs to, uh, needs to elaborate on and tell us that detail. Now, the Rebbe also has numerous questions in the way Rashi quotes this, um, this marshal, but we'll hold off on the questions in Rashi until we get to after the Rebbe's explanation, and then we'll get to the way the Rebbe asks and explains it within Rashi himself, just to keep the flow of the explanation over here. So the Rebbe begins by answering and explaining over here that when the Torah wants to tell us the, the, the purpose and the goal of Yaakov's life, the purpose is not only to describe to us that Yaakov went to Mitzrayim and ultimately made it to Eretz Yisrael, because for that, the Torah doesn't have to mention anything about Esau. The Torah could go straight to Yaakov's life, tell us what happened to Yaakov, and Gandik. That's all we need to know. For that, we don't have to know all the details of Esau. Why do we need to know the details of Esau? Because the Shlemus and the Tachos of Yaakov's life is related to Esau. And that is, if you, in last week's Parsha, in Parsha's Vayishlach, when Yaakov and Esau finally meet, Esau invites Yaakov to join him in Seir. He says, Adasher Ovoi Eladoini Seira, until I'm going to join you, Yaakov tells Esau, until I join you in Seir. But the Yaakov makes clear that now is not the time. What is, when is going to be the time for Yaakov to join Esau in Seir? So Rashi quotes that when Mashiach comes, that the Moshim, the saviors, are going to come, and what are they going to do? They're going to judge Esau. In other words, Esau ultimately is going to meet his judgment when Mashiach comes. What does that mean? It's not just a question of Esau deserving the punishment that he deserves for the uh, sins he might have done in Elam Hazet. Rather, the Torah is telling us that the goal is for Yaakov to elevate it, to be mevarer Esau. When exactly does this happen when Mashiach comes? So therefore, the Torah wants to tell us what's Yaakov's job in Elam Hazet, Esau. So when the Torah gives us the details of Esau's life, the details of Esau's life is to, to describe to us the goal and the purpose of what Yaakov is going to accomplish. So if you want to describe the tachas of where Yaakov is going, Yaakov is going, we have to know Esau's life. So therefore, in order to get to the lifetime of Yaakov, we do need to know what's happening with Esau, all the way up to the point of the end of Esau's kings. Why? Because Esau's kings concluded during the time of Shaul HaMelech, and Shaul HaMelech is described as Mashiach Hashem, and Mashiach, and Shaul HaMelech, if the Yidin would have been Zoycha, could have been Mashiach. So then, according to that, According to that, <clears throat> according to that, the, the the description in the Torah is describing exactly the avoid of what Yaakov needs to keep busy with in order to be Mevarisov during his lifetime. And ultimately, after Yaakov's life, continuing by Yidin until the times of Mashiach. Once we have this uh, introduction, this idea, this explanation, then the Rebbe goes on to explain the details in the Medrash, the details in the Mashal, start to uh, become clear once we have this introduction. Number one, the Rebbe starts to explain is the idea of choil and tzreiris, the sand and the stones. What's the difference between sand and stones? Sand and stones are a, are, are a, uh, are a illusion, it's a remez, it's an illusion to two types of klipos that he did encounters. One type of klipo is the klipo of choil, which is certain things that a person is able to be mevarer, Choil uh, is sand. Sand is only a concealment in Eliko. Sand is not bad. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's not a, a destructive thing in any way. It's only concealment. And by us revealing within that Elikus, so we're able to be Mevarer, the Klippa of the sand, the Choil, the things that we're able to be Mevarer. And then there's a second type of Klippa, which is Tzreirois. 
the Gemara describes tzorois as those things that are damaging, those things that are that that uh, one of the damages of an animal. A shoyer it says that an, a shoyer is able to kick up tzorois as it walks, stones as it walks, and it's able to do damage. So the tzorois are a reference to the types of klipa that a person cannot be mivarer. So here the medrash is describing over here the two types of things, the two types of details in Esau's life with which Yaakov needs to engage. So therefore the Medrash mentions both of these details in the Medrash. Now, ultimately, the Medrash is making clear that in order for Yaakov to reach his Shlemus, in order for Yaakov to reach the purpose and the goal of why he was created, it's necessary for Yaakov to go through Esau first. It's necessary for the Margolis to go through the Jem and the Moshal, to go through the Choyl and the Tzreirois. What's the reason for this? The Torah tells us that in the when 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 Rivka went to ask Shame what's going on with her pregnancy, one of the things that Shame said, Rav Yavoid Tzoyer, which means Rav, which means the greater one, Esau is going to serve the younger one. Why is it necessary for Esau to serve the younger one? In other words, why is it not enough to say get rid of Esau? Yaakov can go somewhere else and leave me alone. No, Rav Yavoid Tzoyer, the older one has to serve the younger one. So the reason for this, the Rebbe explains, is similar to the explanation in Hasidus. Why, in order for a person to live, a person needs to eat foods that are of le- levels which are lower than him. A yid has to eat doimim, semeach, and chai, in order for a yid to live, for a person to live, for a medaber to live. What's the reason for this? Why can't a person just live from the neshama? So Hasidus explains that the shoyresh of doimim, semeach, and chai is from a level higher than the neshama. The neshama's shoyresh is an oilam atikun, and the shoyresh of doimim, semeach, and chai is from oilam atoyu. All the nitzutzis in this world and the Nitzutzos in this world of sparks that a Yid needs to elevate all come from Olam Atoyu. And Olam Atoyu is higher than Tikkun. And therefore the Yid has to elevate, Yaakov has to elevate and engage with Esau, engage in Olam Atoyu. Esau being the Rav, the greater one, the greater one because he, because he originates in Olam Atoyu. And all the kings of Esau originate in Olam Atoyu. That's why the Pasuk describes the kings as coming before the Yidin had a king. It doesn't just mean before in time, it means also before in stature. That the kings of Esau, in a certain sense, because their shoyresh is in Tayu, they're higher than Yaakov. And those nitzutzos, which are higher than Yaakov, they need to be elevated by Yaakov. That is the avoid of Yaakov. And only through that does the neshama achieve its greatest elevation by the neshama elevating the sparks that are found in Elam Hazel. So that is generally the concept of what the mashal is coming to explain. The mashal of the, of the, of the gem, of the jewel, of the Margolis is coming to explain this concept. Now, in the Moshal, the way the Medrash tells us the Moshal, so the Medrash of here makes clear that after we find the gem, what do we have to do? We have to get rid of, we have to drop, maniach, we need to put down the stone and the sand. And the Rebbe asked earlier, it's obvious, well, why do you have to mention it? So the Rebbe says, no, it is important to mention it. And the Rebbe explains it in the context of the Hira. the Rebbe explains why it's important to mention it. What is it? Because in order for a yid to be successful in, in engaging in avodah sabirurim and actually elevating olam hazeh, it's necessary for the yid to have a hanacha, to have the, the concept clear that when he engages, when a yid engages with things here in olam hazeh, the things in olam hazeh that, that the person is engaging with, all of those things in olam hazeh are not the goal of what we're looking for. The yid is not looking to engage in olam hazeh because olam hazeh has something. No. Olam Hazah is nothing. Gashmistic things, physical things that we come in contact with don't exist. Why are we here? Why are we dealing with Olam Hazah? Not because Olam Hazah has something to it, rather because there's a spark within Olam Hazah. 
that spark is alluded to by the Margolis, that uh, gem which is lost within the sand and the stones, that is the spark of, of Alikus and Elomazah. And the Medrash makes clear that once a Yid identifies something that he has to be Mevarer, the attitude needs to be Maniach Esa'afar, Maniach Esa'atroyos. So you have to let go of it. You have to get rid of it to show that the Gashmi sticky things on their own have absolutely no value. If the Gashmis itself has value, so then the Yid, you can't elevate the spark of something and separate it from the Klippa if the person views the Klippa as a, an end unto itself, in other words, as something of value. Only when we identify that the Klippa is garnished, the Klippa is nothing, then we're able to elevate the spark within the Klippa and be it again, by acknowledging that Maniach Esatzor, so we have to let go of the, of the stone and the, and the sand, drop all of that. Now, let's get back for a moment to the way Rashi brings the same mashal. So Rashi quotes the same mashal, and Rashi has a number of changes. So I'll mention two of the changes that Rashi says. Number one, Rashi, when he describes the king with the gem, looking for a gem in the sand, so Rashi says, Rashi says that the king is sitting there and he's sifting it out. What does it mean that he's sifting it out? It means that the avoidah, the engagement of engaging with the choyl and the tzoyrois, is in order to sift, is in order to be mevarer. What, what does it mean to be mevarer? It means to separate the, sto- the, the, the nitzutz, the godly spark in everything, with the gashmias, from the gashmias. In other words, to separate and to say, the reason why I'm here is only for the ruchni sticky finger, but not for the gashmias. What happens once we separate the two? Then we're able to drop and rid uh, and discard the gashmias and only focus on the spark that needs to be elevated. Now, to take it a step further, a second uh, diuk in Rashi, with the way Rashi quotes the mashal. So Rashi, in the, the way the Medrash says the mashal, it says stones and sand together. Rashi says the mashal, in the beginning Rashi says that the stone, the gem, the margolis is lost in the, in, the, in the sand. And then when Rashi describes the king finally finding it, he says that he discards the stones. So in the beginning he mentions sand, at the end he mentions stones. Why the switch? So once we have the Rebbe's explanation, we understand the switch also. What's the purpose of the switch? The purpose of the switch is like this. When the Yid is looking for the Nitzvot Aliki, when the Yid is beginning to engage with Gashmias, so we engage with Gashmias sticky things, and we engage in Gashmias sticky things, and we're allowed to engage in Dvar Mamutarim. Those things are Choyl. Choyl means that they conceal godliness, it's the sand, and we're searching for the gem within it. What happens once we find it and we're able to elevate it? In other words, once we've accomplished what we need to accomplish with it, What's left? What's left is nothing. What's left is just the klipa. The klipa now is like tzreiris. It's like a stone that has no value to us. It's a stone that's got nothing to it. It's a stone that now we have to uh, discard and treat like it doesn't exist. And that's why Rashi says that when the king is, is discarding it, he's discarding the tzreiris and he's throwing it. He's not just putting it down. Rashi uses the word mashlech. You throw it. You have no value to it. You get rid of it. And that's the end of the story. Now, this avoida of... Of, of, of this avoida of Birrani Tzutzois in such a way begins only the avoida of Yaakov, not Avram, not Noyach. And the reason for that is two pieces. First part is because Yaakov begins the Hachana from Atan Torah. Avram was revealed Elikus in this world, but the Elikus that Avram revealed was the Elikus which was Be'erecha Oilomais, which was relative to Oilomais. And on that level, you can't do any tzutzais where the world doesn't exist. Because if the alikus is relative to Elamais, so in other words, the alikus gives place for Elamais. Elamais exists as well. There's an Asinas Makim, we're giving space for Elamais to exist. 
So you can't be mevarim on that level where the world doesn't exist. Only when it comes to the void of Yaakov, where Yaakov is the achanah from Atan Torah, when we want to reveal a likus which is far greater than Olam Haza, than Olam Only then do we engage with an Olam Haza in such a way that the world doesn't exist. We find the gem and we discard the sand and we discard the stones because they have no value. So only, only Yaakov is the one, as the Hachanah from Atan Torah, Yaakov is the one who begins this Avodah. Now, at the same time, it doesn't mean that we skip the Avodah of Noyach, we skip the Avodah of Avram. No, there's an order. We have to have first Avodah of Noyach and Avodah of Avram. And then they prepare for Yaakov to do his Avodah. Why is that? Because Noyach has to first be Mevarer, his ten generations. Noyach's ten generations were evil people. They also had to undergo a beer. And then Avram had to undergo a beer of the people in his generation to be Mevarer and to bring, draw, reveal Elikus into, his, into the world, at least on a level that the world can handle, at least on Elikus, which is Be'erach Once we have those two things out of the way, then comes the Avoid of Yaakov, which is to reveal Elikus, which is far greater than Velt, than Oilamois. Now, the, this is true with regard to an individual Yid. An individual Yid has to operate in his Avoid in such a way that once we find, once we identify the Nitzutz and our Olam Hazah is nothing. Olam Hazah doesn't exist. Now, the same thing is true when it comes collectively to collectively with all the Yidin. And this is something that we saw when the Yidin left in Trayim, and it's something which we're also going to see when Mashiach comes as well. When the Yidin left in Trayim, the Torah tells us that Hashem didn't hold the Yidin back, even like the blink of an eye. And the obvious question is, who cares? Let the Yidin stay an extra minute, an extra day. What's the rush? What? Okay, still stay, big deal. The answer is no. The answer is that once we identify that Olam Haza is talking nothing, and we remivare all the sparks that need birr were elevated, so what's left of Mitzrayim? Nothing. There's no Mitzrayim left. Because the whole, the whole explanation is that once we identify the, the, the gem, everything else, mashlich, we discard everything else. So Bemela, there's no Mitzrayim anymore. Mitzrayim doesn't exist anymore. So automatically, the Yidin are out. The Yidin leave Mitzrayim. In a similar vein, when Mashiach comes, so collectively, all the Yidin collectively are elevating all the sparks that we engage in, in all the locations where we are, in all the generations where we are. And then when Mashiach comes, when the time comes, when we culminate that avoida of being revived in Yitzhutzais, obviously at that moment, Olam Hazah, as we know it, Olam Hazah as a separate entity, Olam Hazah as a concealment elikos ceases to exist. And at that moment, immediately Mashiach comes, and the Yidin will be taken out of Golos, Take a miyad mamash.